Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast. All right, so in Langley, Virginia, at the CIA headquarters, when you walk in, one of the things that you notice is that the lobby is all marble. And in the center of the floor, they have the CIA seal. And on the north wall, they have the American flag, and then they have their CIA flag. Into that wall are black stars. It is a memorial to the CIA employees who have given their lives in the line of duty. Now, underneath the stars, there is a stainless steel and glass bookcase, which contains a book. And that book is called the Book of Honor. And in that book are the names of the CIA operatives who have given their lives in the line of duty. They have the dates of their deaths and their names written in it. But some of them only have the year and a star with no name, known as the nameless stars. Those stars represents covert operatives whose identities, if they were to be revealed, would be a national security risk and compromise current operations overseas. Now, however, some of them are very old from the Cold War and Vietnam era, and they really have no impact on national security today. However, those identities are still secret. Now, there was an investigative journalist by the name of Ted Gupp who went on a quest to find out the stories and the identities of the nameless stars and what happened to them and how did they die. So he went on a quest to find this information out, to let it be known. Now, I find this is important because we all honor our veterans who fought in foreign wars and who have given their lives in service to this country. We often forget about the intelligence community, especially the covert operatives who work undercover overseas without any recognition, who die without any recognition, sometimes without even their families even know what they were really a part of. We forget about these men and women, and I believe that they should be honored. Now, Ted Gupp, he wrote a book titled The Book of Honor. He went on a investigation to find out the stories of the nameless stars. And he talked to over 400, at the time it was written, current and former CIA operatives and the family members of those who were lost to find out the stories and the identities. Now, this book obviously received pushback from the CIA. However, it was published. And the CIA's official statement on the book is that it can neither deny or confirm anything about the book. If you buy the book, there's pictures and a whole bunch of information in there. At the time that this book was written in the year 2000, there were 69 stars on the North Wall in the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. This was pre-9-11. Today, as we speak, there is 137 stars. At the time of the writing of the book, half of the 69 stars were nameless stars. They had no names. Those were covert operatives that gave their life. I couldn't find any information on the current number of nameless stars out of the 137 stars etched into the North Wall. But I, I would say that it's safe to say that it's probably about the same. About half of them are nameless stars. So hopefully... There will be another book, such as the Book of Honor, that will tell those stories. So I'm going to tell one story today. I'm going to tell one story from the book, 
Now, each story in this book is, is pretty long. I'm going to say it's probably between 30 and 60 pages, some of them. So I'm going to be skipping around and I'm just picking out the parts that I think are most important what we're doing on this podcast. So if you want to read the whole story, then I suggest go and grab the book and read it. And of course, read all the other stories that are in there. Very insightful, very informative. So we're going to get right into it. We're going to flip the script. Sunday evening, April 17th, 1983, had been a festive time for the CIA employee stationed in Beirut. 39-year-old James Lewis, a veteran covert operative, and his Vietnamese-born wife, Monique, had invited agency colleagues to their apartment for a dinner. As only Lewis could prepare a gourmet chef, he had spent hours fixing the meal, nothing but the freshest ingredients, the best spices, and perfect wine. The agency's top Middle East specialist, Robert C. Ames, was in town on temporary duty, and there was a sense that what was happening here made the shattered capital city, once likened to Paris, some sort of epicenter, a place of deadly intrigue, espionage, and ancient rivalries. In short, James Lewis' kind of place. Monique, too, had a special reason to celebrate this evening. The next day was to be her first day on the job, working as a CIA secretary in the embassy. It was a spring, a time of hope, even in Beirut, and a time for Jim Lewis to put his culinary skills to the test on behalf of his friends, old and new. So James Lewis is hosting his CIA colleagues in Beirut, Lebanon, 1983, April 17th, for a dinner party. And his wife, who's Vietnamese-born, she starting her first day on the job the next day as a secretary for the CIA. We're going to read into the background more about James Lewis and his wife, Monique. All right, so we're going to continue. Let's flip the script. Across town, some other preparations, no less elaborate, were underway. 2,000 pounds of high explosives were being readied to target the U.S. Embassy in Beirut. For the driver of the truck, that will carry a massive bomb and steer it squarely into the embassy's glass and concrete facade. There were other preparations of another kind to be made, for whatever promised glory might await would not be in this world, but in the next. So at the same time that this dinner party is being prepared, there are other preparations being prepared by a suicide bomber who is loading thousands of pounds into a truck and is planning on ramming that truck into the embassy in Beirut, Lebanon. All right, let's continue. Let's flip the script. The agency operatives in Beirut each had their cover, their bogus stories, their mundane tasks that they hoped would shield them from suspicion. Jim Lewis was listed as an embassy political officer. His wife, Monique, was said to be a State Department secretary. Kenneth Eugene Hess, agency's 38-year-old chief of station was also listed as a political officer. Recently married, he had served in many sensitive posts such as Bangladesh and Iran. Frank J. Johnson was said to be an econ officer, as was Murray J. McCann. 59-year-old William Richard Scheel was said to be a civilian employee of the army. A veteran of Vietnam had made a name for himself as a superb interrogator, a man who relied on honey, not horror, to wriggle information from his subjects. Deborah M. Hickson, a third year old from Colorado and daughter of an airline pilot, was said to be a foreign affairs analyst with the state. Phyllis Faraci, 44, was an administrative assistant undercover with the State Department. Less than 24 hours after that Sunday evening dinner, all but one of them 
would be dead. All right. So the CIA covert operatives overseas, they have covers. They have bogus claims and stories that they use to say why they are where they are and what their job is to cover for what they're really doing there. So they all had their own stories and what their covers were. And now, as we see, less than 24 hours after this dinner party is going to take place, all of them, except for one, will be dead. Let's continue. Let's flip the script. James Lewis bore little resemblance to the fictional James Bond, but in Lewis, 007 would have more than met his match. A lengthy, six foot two, had boyish good looks, a full head of hair, dark parted perfectly, kind eyes, and an easy smile. He was comfortable dicing onions in the kitchen, listening to French music, and sipping in good Bordeaux. He might as easily have been taken for a fresh-faced teacher at a prep school as one of the agency's premier covert operatives. A personable fellow, he thrived on entertaining and mixed easily with diverse peoples. And even those who worked with him daily would later reflect that they had knew almost nothing about him. But those who underestimated him did so at their own peril. Literally. Fluent in Arabic, French, and Vietnamese, he was an expert in the M14, a 45, a parachute capable of underwater infiltration and dropping silently from the skies. His work for the agency had taken him to every country in the Southeast Asia and most of those in Europe and the Middle East. From earliest boyhood, James Lewis had one ambition, to be a soldier. Not just any soldier, but a paratrooper. His father, James Forrest Pittman, had been a paratrooper in the 101st. Lewis was born James Forrest Pittman Jr. on February 29, 1944. His father was overseas fighting World War II. So James Lewis, his real name was James Forrest Pittman Jr. And his dad, when he was born, was fighting in World War II in the 101st Airborne. So he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps to become a soldier and a paratrooper. They were from Coffeyville, Mississippi. Growing some things, his uh, dad ends up leaving his family. He had a problem with drinking and, you know, he ended up leaving and left him and his mom alone. So this is when James Lewis started to develop, kind of becoming closed off from everybody else. Uh, He remained very secretive. He didn't let too many people know his emotions. He kept everything inside. This would pay off for him as he would get into the covert operations. All right, let's continue. Let's flip the script. So Jim Lewis enlisted in the army on his 18th birthday, February 28th, 1962. Lewis had his eye on wearing a green beret of special forces. He instantly distinguished himself first in training and then in combat. By early 1967, Lewis was in command of an elite unit of Vietnam. Their mission was to stave off impending disaster or defend or relieve special forces when they found themselves under siege or about to be overrun. Time and time again, Lewis proved himself in the field. On April 3rd, 1967, as a second lieutenant in the 5th Special Forces Group, he was wounded. For this, he would receive a Purple Heart. Just seven days later, he'd be back on a mission deep within hostile North Vietnamese territory. As the head of the Special Forces Reconnaissance Platoon, he and his men were moving through a dense jungle when they came under intense automatic weapons fire from three sides. Instead of retreating or hunkering down, he led his men on the attack of the Viet Cong positions and drove them back. His fearless leadership contributed greatly to the defeat of the hostile forces and prevented serious casualties of his men. Read the citation for the first 
of an extraordinary four bronze stars, the gallantry cross, and innumerable other medals, ribbons, commendations. A notebook he carried, though somewhat encoded, reveals something of his life in the field. On one page he wrote, a message from Catcher to Chestnut. The Vietnamese Special Forces have planned an operation that requested that the following items be given to them for their operation. Four PRC-10 radios, 50 or more carbine mags, 20 bar magazines, 20 hand parachute flares. Both USSF, United States Special Forces, have agreed that the items are necessary for the successful completion of the patrol. Many of James Lewis's military operations with Special Forces had been conducted under the direction of the CIA. And by the spring of 1969, he had decided that he would apply to work for the agency directly. With his background in Special Forces in Vietnam, his gift for languages, and his reputation for both valor and distinction, it was exactly what the agency was looking for. So in the Special Forces commands that James Lewis is working in, a lot of them are directed by the CIA. He liked that work that he was doing. He decided that he was going to try and go work for the CIA directly to become an employee. And that's what he did. The CIA said that this guy is exactly what we're looking for. In 1970, Lewis was brought into the CIA under the Jewel program, which sought out those with unique paramilitary skills. The agency returned him to the Southeast Asia jungles, where he was made all too familiar with desperate situations, particularly in Laos. People started to realize that it's time to get out of there. So as the troops started to dwindle down and combat operations started to cease, that was not the case for the CIA operatives in Vietnam, because it was their job to make sure that the transition out went smooth and that U.S. military weren't being attacked on the way out. Just put a lot of stress on the CIA operatives that were working there at the time. So after this, after Vietnam, James Lewis, he is fluent in French, Arabic, Vietnamese. He ends up working in the Middle East, working in Beirut. So we're going to start getting into that and see how he ended up there. Let's flip the script. In late 1979, he began to prepare himself to return to covert posts in the Middle East. First, he would need to undergo rigorous Arabic language training after completing an intensive course at the Foreign Language Institute in suburban Virginia. He was assigned to Tunis to complete his language training. But in the summer of 1982, as events in Lebanon heated up, the agency cast about an experienced case officer with solid nerves and a knowledge of Arabic to gather intelligence on the deteriorating situation in that country. Already, it had a reputation as a hazardous post. Five years earlier, on June 16, 1976, U.S. Ambassador Francis E. Malloy, U.S. Economic Counselor Robert O. Waring, and the Ambassador Bodyguard had been assassinated. Their bullet-riddled bodies were later found in a construction site. In December of that year, a bomb had killed 64 people at the Iraq Embassy, including the Ambassador. In May 1982, 12 people were killed and 27 injured at the French embassy. It was no secret that Beirut was a place of peril, but it was where the agency needed Lewis, and that was where he would go. On August 13, 1982, Lewis arrived in war-ravaged Beirut. His intelligence-gathering mission was linked to the arrival seven days later of 800 U.S. Marines, part of a multinational force to supervise the withdrawal of the Palestinians from the city. It began as a temporary assignment. Beirut was a volatile place, and spouses of agency officers were not yet permitted to accompany them. 
Lewis was bent on setting his mother's mind at ease. Four months after arriving in Beirut, he wrote, Everything is fine here. The war in Beirut is over and I have survived as usual, not even a scratch. The temporary assignment became a full tour of duty and the prohibition of spouses was lifted. Lewis and Monique found a temporary apartment in a commercial area of the city and an easy 10 minutes to the embassy. So Beirut is pretty much off the hook at the time that Lewis goes there. Things start to calm down and the prohibition on spouses is lifted and Lewis is allowed to bring his wife to Beirut, Lebanon with him, his wife, Monique. So she goes to Beirut and she starts to learn Arabic herself. And this is how she ends up getting her job at the embassy. It was a few minutes after one in the afternoon on April 18th, 1983, when her truck with a tarp over it was observed making its way purposely toward the U.S. embassy. At the very time the truck came in sight of the embassy, 37-year-old Richard Gannon from the State Department Regional Security Officer was at his desk reviewing security procedures. Across from him sat his supervisor, Dave Roberts, the regional director of security who had flown in from Casablanca. Gannon's job making sure the embassy was secure was possible. The embassy was housed in an aging eight-story structure. Originally a hotel, it provided a spellbinding view and a deadly vulnerability. Gannon had been fretting about the exposure of the embassy ever since arriving in the country eight months earlier. Tensions had been running high for months. The Israelis had invaded Lebanon on June 6, 1982, and there was an uneasy standoff between their occupying forces and various Palestinian and Syrian forces. On September 15, 1982, the Israelis had entered Beirut. All right, so at this time, the Israelis are going on offense. They're fighting off the Palestinians and they go into Beirut, Lebanon. And there's an evacuation trying to take place of trying to get the Palestinians that are in Beirut out of there. Israelis are coming in. Now, many people in this area, they see Israel as working on behalf of the U.S. The tensions there are not too good. So the embassy quickly becomes a target for those who are looking to cause trouble, right? So that's where we find ourselves at this moment. So let's continue. Let's flip the script. But by mid-April, after the Israelis had pulled back and a multinational force had come in the scene, there was a kind of lull in the violence that raised hopes. Spring itself seemed to promise a relaxation of tensions. All such buoyancy of spirit would soon come to an abrupt halt. As the explosive laden truck turned into the embassy driveway and gunned the accelerator, Ambassador Dillon was in his eighth floor office one hand holding a phone and the other awkwardly putting on a thick red marine t-shirt in an expectation of his afternoon jog. Three floors below him, virtually the entire CIA station was assembled for a staff meeting. James Lewis, his wife Monique, Phyllis Faraci, Frank Johnson, Bob Ames, William Scheel, and Deborah Hickson were all there. Nick Gannon's back was to the sea, a rolled down metal shutter raised to let the afternoon light in, and Gannon's inbox was a handwritten memo when he called a note to himself laying out the vulnerabilities of the Beirut embassy. It read in part, increasing concerns with deteriorating security situation in Beirut. Ability of Lebanese armed forces and local law enforcement to prevent such attacks is non-existent. It may only be a matter of time before the U.S. is added to a list of opportune targets. With the explosives, motive, and the absence of any deterrent, the U.S. interests could be a target with minimal risk. What might we face? A car bomb, package bomb. So this guy, Dick Gannon, 
has been complaining about the security risks that the embassy in Beirut was facing. Now, we see this time and time again with overseas embassies, specifically in the Middle East, where there's vulnerabilities and there's security problems. And the embassy happened in Benghazi. It's happened so many times that an embassy has been attacked and people have died because of security issues that were that they tried to address but were eventually shot down. And this is another case of that. The CIA, the State Department, the government, the reasons for not giving them the security they needed, they say because of budgetary or political reasons. I say it's because of the budgets and then they didn't have the money, but in reality, it's because of political reasons. All right, right, so let's continue, let's flip the script. At precisely 1.06 p.m., his worst fears were realized. The truck carrying a bomb drove into the building and simultaneously detonated a ton of high explosives. Cars were tossed into the air. A blinding fireball rose up from a murderous shock and scaled in front of the building, bringing down the midsection as if it were no more than a house of cards. Some of those in the adjacent cafeteria closest to the explosion were blown through the wall. Support pillars t- disintegrated. Black smoke engulfed the entire building. Air conditioners were blown inside of rooms. Walls collapsed. Safes flew open. Canisters of riot control gas erupted, malingering with black smoke and dense debris, making breathing even more difficult. Flying metal cut a tree in half, and the heat from the blast melted nearby traffic lights. So this bomb, this truck bomb that was rammed into the embassy was so strong that the heat from it melted traffic lights around it. It said that the support beams inside the building t- disintegrated. So this building is collapsing in and on itself. So this is the type of picture that we can imagine of what is happening inside this embassy in Beirut, 1983. Amid a landscape of twisted metal, concrete, and broken glass, the wounded and disoriented stumbled about in utter shock. It's amazing that there was even survivors of this, right? Let's continue. Security officer Gannon and his boss Roberts were blown to the floor. Roberts, who had been facing the window, was cut by flying glass. In the next room, a secretary was screaming. On the eighth floor, Ambassador Dillon had slipped the heavy T-shirt halfway over his head at the moment of the blast. The shirt absorbed the glass and was blown in and saved his face, if not his life. But much of the worst damage occurred in the upper floors, which collapsed and pancaked. Within minutes, the frantic search for survivors began. From the street, there was a grim vision of a body literally hanging over the edge. It was that of CIA officer Frank Johnson. Pinned between two slabs, he was being crushed to death. A military team reached him and pried up one of the slabs just enough to loosen the grips and free him. Johnson lived just long enough to ask that his wallet be given to his wife. On the upper floor where the CIA station had been meeting, There, Monique had been enjoying her first day on the job. There was now nothing but air in the dismal view of seven floors and concrete steel and glass reduced to rubble far below. Jim Lewis, Monique, Bill Scheel, Deborah Hickson, Phyllis Faraci, Bob Ames, and Station Keith Ken Hass, all lost. It would be two, even three days before the bodies would be found. The awful duty of identifying the bodies fell to Deputy Chief Robert Pugh. Among the bodies he identified were those of Jim and Monique. They were not mangled, he remembers. They looked very much like themselves. They had been suffocated by the debris and dirt. It looked almost as if they had died in their sleep. Of the entire CIA 
Beirut station, only one covert officer had survived. His name's Murray J. McCann. At the time of the bomb detonated, he had been out of the building on a personal errand. There was yet another covert CIA officer in Beirut that day. It was Alexander McPherson, a veteran of clandestine missions who five years earlier had crawled away from the fiery North Carolina plane crash that killed Burl King and Dennis Gabriel. Then under deep cover was on temporary duty in Beirut and had avoided contact with the embassy, lest to compromise his cover. Standing a mile or so from the embassy, he heard the deafening blast. Once again, he had proved to be the consummate survivor. In all, 17 Americans and 33 foreign nationals had died in the embassy bombing. In the immediate aftermath of the bombing, the State Department was besieged by reporters asking for the identities and biographies of those killed in the attack. Without time to coordinate stories with the CIA, the state released thumbnail sketches of the victims based upon their cover stories. Reporters were told, for instance, that CIA operative William Shield was a civilian employee of the Army, but there had been no time to give the Army a heads up. Shield, said the Army spokesperson, we have no William Shield. So you can imagine this situation here. All of a sudden, the State Department is getting asked about the victims of who were killed in the blast, and they provide sketches and bios according to their cover stories that they were going by. But they had no time to coordinate with the other agencies. So in the case of Shiel, he they were told he was a civil, civilian employee of the army. So the reporters reach out to the army and they like, we have no idea who that guy is. So you can imagine now the, con- the confusion that starts happening. When there's confusion like this, there's also uh, conspiracy theories that happen. Now the CIA is often the butt of many conspiracy theories, often because of they do it to themselves and the way that they answer questions or not coordinate their stories. They're extremely secretive. So when you're in that type of secrecy, it is bound to have many conspiracy theories brought up about it. CIA has gotten a bad rap over the years. A lot of it is self-induced. A lot of it they've done to themselves. But the sacrifices that the men and women on the ground and those covert operations, the sacrifices they make to fight these type of wars overseas so that we don't have to fight them here, it's commendable. And they should be remembered, those who paid the ultimate sacrifice. Let's continue. Let's flip the script. William J. Casey, director of Central Intelligence, spoke of the heroism of those who had died. He had cited the lines written from the Thermopylae, wherein... 480 BC, the Greeks, though ultimately defeated, heroically resisted the Persians. Go, passerby, and to Sparta tell that we in faithful service fell. A year later, in his private office on the HC's seventh floor, Casey would present Lewis's mother, Tony, medals for her son's valor. The citation of the C- Certificate of Distinction for Courageous Performance reads, in recognition of his superior performance with the Central Intelligence Agency, from August 13th, 1982 to 18th of April, 1983, <clears throat> demonstrated exceptional devotion to duty under conditions of grave personal risk. His professionalism was a constant source of strength and encouragement to his colleagues and upholds the finest traditions of the operations directorate. Mr. Lewis's flawless efforts, commitments, excellence on unstinging, courageous service reflect and credit on himself the Central Intelligence Agency, and the Federal Service. 
Given his awards to his mother of the fallen covert officer, the agency would not put in writing the country of service. But it was the letters and the condolences from Lewis's colleagues within the covert ranks that moved Tony Lewis most deeply. I and many others regard Jim as the true latter-day American heroes, one colleague wrote. Unfortunately, the world may never become fully aware of the depth of his experience and service and sense of duty. I hope that you can take comfort in knowing that there are many who not only know of Jim's gallant history, but who still also remember him as a model for our own lives. Another covert officer wrote, Your son was a friend and a colleague for the past 20 years. Our sorrow, frustration, and anger over this loss in Beirut cannot be expressed to you in a way that will soften the blow or dull the pain. All of us have learned to create a reserved place in our hearts for memories of men like Jim, to be brought occasionally to the forefront of our thoughts, carefully burnished and recalled with mixture of sadness and pride. Remembering Jim's efforts to make a difference in this world will help us continue. So those are some of the writings from and letters from other covert operatives who worked with Jim over the years with the CIA and those kind words to his mother. Some of them let her know where his son was at the time of his death, even though the CIA's own awards cannot have it listed there. In time, Jim and Monique Lewis and other CIA officers who died in Beirut bombing would be accorded nameless stars in the agency's Book of Honor. But nearly two decades after the bombing, the names of the dead remain classified. As in other cases, the agency maintains that identifying its casualties, even decades later, would endanger foreign nationals who may have provided the CIA with intelligence. And that's where we're going to leave it here for today. I hope you enjoyed the story of these covert CIA operatives who gave their lives defending the United States overseas and a look into the CIA itself. There's a lot of stories in this book, so expect there will be more podcasts on the subject and we'll dig deeper into some other stories about the CIA and those nameless stars up in the North Wall in Langley, Virginia. If you like this podcast, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the share button. The best thing you do to support this podcast is to share this podcast either on YouTube or through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And also write a review on those platforms. Hit the subscribe button, leave some comments. That's the best way that you can support this podcast. Until next time, this is Flip the Script Podcast out.